Thank you, uh, Lindsay. It is a privilege to take the next couple of weeks and serve you in this way. I view it that way. I'm thankful for the opportunity to share God's word. We're learning together, um, and I'm excited to uh, go with you, journey with you through these two chapters in Philippians. Uh, so if you would, uh, turn in uh, your scripture or, or uh, scroll or tap or whatever you do, have to do to get to the scripture this morning. Uh, Philippians chapter 3, we're going to be looking at the first seven verses uh, in Philippians chapter 3. And uh, this morning I want us to concentrate on one assertion. Now I've given you a title this morning, it's called Joyful Confidence in Christ Alone. That's going to be the title of the sermon this morning. But there's one assertion that I want each one of us to reflect on as we go through this passage and even as we leave this week for us to meditate on, and, and, and that is this. Rejoice in the Lord and place all your confidence in Christ alone. Now that seems pretty straightforward, seems pretty easy, but I think each one of us, if we were truly honest with ourselves, we need to reflect on those notions a little bit more um, each day. And so by way of brief survey while you're turning to Philippians chapter 3, um, we've been looking at the first two chapters in Philippians and, and two themes have continued to rise up and will continue to rise up because they are the two themes in Philippians, uh, and that is joy and unity. Um, so in chapter 1, uh, we heard about the unifying power of the shared gospel, of the gospel in a shared community setting. Uh, in chapter 2, we, we were granted uh, a picture of the joy given to us through Christ's incarnation. And then specifically for the Philippians, two very intimate stories with Timothy and Epaphroditus, what, how joy can protect and motivate even in the midst of challenging circumstances. Uh, so when we get to chapter 3, um, there's a slight transition in content. And when I read it this morning, um, it'll indicate a little bit of a change of pace. So if you'll follow along with me, I'm going to begin reading in chapter 3, verse 1 and read down through verse seven. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. For whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. So Paul transitions here in the book of Philippians to a new section and indicates this by the word he uses, the, the word we have I, I read here further. Uh, he's indicating a change in, in topic, and uh, it's largely the, the, the big division that occurs in Philippians. And what Paul is attempting to do is kind of break away from what was likely a very emotional story for the Philippians with Epaphroditus and refocus the Philippians' attentions on what, what lies ahead. Uh, so one expects critical information to follow uh, when Paul gives this word, critical information that we are supposed to pay attention to. So what does Paul say immediately after this uh, word of transition? Uh, well, he gives us our first point for this morning. He says this, rejoice in the Lord. And my first point this morning is rejoice in the Lord 
as a guard to the unity of the church. Rejoice in the Lord as a guard to the unity of the church. And we see this through the first three verses of our passage this morning. Uh, In many ways, there would have been no better way for uh, Paul to transition from the story of Epaphroditus and Timothy before that um, than to assert another challenge for joy and unity in the Philippian church. Uh, We are to rejoice in the Lord. And so Paul doesn't really say, okay, Philippians, you need to just be happy. Uh, I know we all have sad stories and we're all kind of struggling through, drag, you know, pull ourselves up and let's be happy. He gives a qualifying phrase. We're not just to be happy in some emotion or some state of mind, but we are to rejoice in the Lord. It's not self-generated, but there's a very specific source and content for the joy that we are supposed to feel and the joy we are supposed to experience. And so Paul then is concerned as a direct result of this joy that the Philippians and the doctrine will become compromised. Um, he explains a, a twofold protection for his readers uh, when he explains this joy. We often wonder, well, well, how can joy be a guard? Well, Paul explains this. First, Paul says, joy in the Lord preserves the pure gospel. We see this in verse two when he gives all of these warnings. Um, the way I read it, it said, watch out for the dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. Uh, the group that Paul's referencing here were a a group called the Judaizers. Uh, That's just a fancy way for saying Jewish Christians who were essentially insisting that Gentile Christians add on to uh, the gospel, the Mosaic law and the Mosaic code as a means for entering the redeemed community and as a means to salvation. Uh, They were insisting that the legalistic requirements of the law were to be added to the the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in many ways, that's the best way for us to to apply this to our lives today. Uh, Legalistic requirements, adding uh, additional factors and features, things that we're supposed to do, adding it to the gospel. Uh, And what they were doing is misunderstanding uh, the Old Testament code as originally intended to be a sign, a signpost of things to come. Uh, The author of Hebrews describes it as a foreshadow of things to come in Christ. What they were doing is is saying, no, these things are essential features of the gospel across time. And for us, we need to remember that we we can do the same thing. We can add uh, requirements to the gospel. Sometimes it's difficult for us to accept a free gift of grace. And here Paul is warning the Philippians and God is warning us through Paul to guard ourselves against this. But again, it asks a natural question. I asked it earlier, but I'll ask it again. How does joy in Christ protect or guard? We typically don't ask, when we say, okay, guard pure doctrine. I know in school, they don't say just be joyful. Um, That's not something that was in my training up to point. They don't say just, well, be joyful. They provide information and, and that sort of thing. But the qualification in the Lord provides a very helpful feature for how joy, true joy, actually does guard because only when we have our, the source and content of our joy as in the Lord, a very specific kind of joy, can we maintain the strength, the faith, and the hope to guard ourselves in the midst of some, what might confuse us or additions we might add to the gospel. So when our hearts are drawn away to sin, is it not often when we are discouraged or we distrust the promises of God So Paul here is reminding us, uh, the word of God is reminding us that we must find our source of contentment and joy in the Lord. And in fact, this is a common theme in scripture. 
uh, Nehemiah chapter 8. So at the end of the resettling of Israel at a very difficult time, uh, when there was lots of uh, animosity and resistance to uh, restarting uh, the cultic wor- uh, the Hebrew worship in the promised land, Nehemiah gives this statement in chapter 8, verse 10. He says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Uh, also, the Psalms uh, frequently mention joy and, and the strengthening power of the Spirit of God, specifically Psalm 28. The joy of the Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him and he helps me. My heart leaps for joy and with my song, I praise him. Psalm 81.1 says the same thing. Sing aloud to God our strength. Shout for joy to the God of Jacob. This kind of joy will guard our hearts and minds and will guard the pure gospel. Uh, also, Paul gives some pretty intentionally controversial and provocative descriptions of the Judaizers during this time, but for us it provides very critical information to understand uh, what kinds of additions were being uh, added onto the gospel and a way for us to appreciate the ways that we too often will add to the gospel. So these terms that Paul uses, uh, first he uses the term dogs, um, which can be kind of confusing. Why does he call them dogs? Uh, well, the ancient Near Eastern people of this time viewed dogs as uh, vile, dirty animals, uh, Jews especially. Uh, viewed dogs as kind of indiscriminate and even immoral animals. Um, Often in the Old Testament and in this era, cultic prostitutes were called dogs. And very practically, I've owned dogs before, and they're not exactly um, picky about what they eat or what they sniff or lick or, you know, I mean, so you you can begin to gather the imagery of what Paul's painting when he he calls these men dogs or these people dogs. Uh, Evildoers, what does this mean? Uh, Literally, it means evil workers, workers of evil. So a group of people that prided themselves in keeping the requirements of the law. Often uh, we are doers of the law. Um, He says, no, you are actually workers of evil. And in fact, this is in direct contrast to what James describes. A Christian is a doer of the word and not just a hearer. So in direct contrast to what a Christian should be, a doer of the word, Paul says, no, these are evil workers. They work evil. Um, Mutilators of the flesh. I I think it's, uh, again, maybe a a slightly straightforward uh, description because the Judaizers emphasized circumcision as uh, the critical component. It was most often what they uh, would... uh, add on to the gospel, what often they required of Gentile Christians. And Paul here says, no, uh, this act of covenant faithfulness in the past, that was a good thing. That's what's also fascinating about what the Judaizers used. They used a good, good things. Um, these these uh, symbols of, of covenant faithfulness were in a particular time and place were signs of obedience, uh, outward signs of covenant relationship. But here they misused them. And Paul goes, uh, beyond saying, okay, you, you have simply added on, but you've actually mutilated a good thing. You've destroyed a good thing. Uh, and it begs the question for us, what are you, what am I adding to the gospel? Now, uh, I know I feel this way. Uh, I initially deny, well, surely I'm, I'm not adding anything to the gospel. Um, but again, if we're, if we're honest with ourselves, we have a tendency to add on to maybe not the initial act of where we commit our lives to Christ, but the ongoing act of a life committed to Christ. Um, 
we are all dogs when it comes down to it. Uh, we're indiscriminate with our appetites, with our desires. I know it frightens me sometimes the things I desire. Uh, and if each one of us, as we reflect, we, are, we, are, we have evil desires that war in us. Uh, we're all evildoers, committing sin in our thoughts, intent, actions, and words uh, each and every day. And then we're all mutilators of the flesh because we seek to add some act or ability or some habit, some outward conformity to God's gracious work through Jesus Christ. What acts of the flesh, uh, good things even that you've misdirected uh, are, are sources of confidence to you, uh, where you gain your sense of meaning and worth, identity. Um, are there any sources of authority uh, that you draw on more readily than the word of God, the spirit of God, Christ alone. Uh, beware of the cultural and social pressures to change the pure gospel. Uh, we, we hear of them time and again. Uh, the homosexuality debate, the marriage debate is one that's prominent in my mind as an, as an ethics student, something we talk about all the time. Um, there is co distinct cultural pressure to change what we say about the word of God. Beware of, of how you are tempted to change the gospel uh, to feel more comfortable, your tendency to add to the gospel. But rather instead, let the joy in the Lord, let your joy in the Lord, a source and a content of, of Jesus Christ himself guard your heart. Uh, Matthew Henry, a Puritan uh, commentator, reminds us of this. The joy of the Lord will arm us against the assaults of our spiritual enemies and put our mouths out of taste for those pleasures with which the tempter baits his hooks. So this new section in Philippians begins with a proclamation for joy in the Lord. Uh, the Lord is the source and the content of our joy and, and such a disposition, a, a way of living, guards the community of faith. First of all, this joy guards by protecting the pure gospel. And then secondly, uh, the joy in the Lord displays the unity of the redeemed community. It displays the unity of the redeemed community. And we see this in verse three. So Paul gives this kind of uh, a twofold defense. And first he gives us uh, the, what would seem to be a, a defensive. So offense and defense, right, uh, in sports. So he gives a defense. Uh, the joy of the Lord is a defense from these things. It protects you from these things. Uh, and they're given in the form of imperatives. Beware of these things. Beware of these things. And, and verse two, uh, watch out is the way uh, my translation had it here. So he, he's, these are commands, but now he moves to a, a different kind of protection or guard that in some ways is the offensive approach. It is an active display and he puts it in, in the indicative. So he says, this is, this is the way, it's a state of being. This is the way you are as the true circumcision is the phrase he uses here. And in contrast to the false teaching, the additions to the gospel, this is what true gospel community looks like, uh, the, the unity of the redeemed community. And so verse three directly contrasts the mutilators of the flesh, the, the Jewish Christians, the Judaizers, the legalists would probably be an easy way for us to remember that from verse two. And here Paul outlines the true circumcision of the heart. And Paul argues this not only here, but in Romans two and Romans four, and he draws on Old Testament imagery from Deuteronomy 10, for example. Um, Deuteronomy 10, 16 commands circumcision of the heart. 
Uh, Jeremiah 9.25 actually threatens divine wrath on those who are only circumcised in the flesh, which again is kind of fitting for what the Judaizers were wanting, just this physical symbol rather than an internal reality. Um, and the Old Testament anticipates an enlivening, an internal enlivening of the heart uh, by the Spirit of God. And Paul identifies this as the true circumcision, an internal reality. And he gives these, these three examples that are in so many ways a direct contrast to what the three warnings he had given pre- previously in verse 2. So there are three state of being realities in verse, given in verse 3. Uh, and he first says, uh, we are those who serve God by his spirit. Uh, so the true circumcision, serve God by his spirit. Such a phrasing is actually uh, draws a lot of imagery for priestly service. And again, writing to uh, Jewish Christians who are emphasizing adding more, it's direct contrast to the mutilators of the flesh. In fact, the Old Testament law pro- for, forbid any, man, any male who was mutilated from having any priestly service, from any uh, priestly act. And so what Paul says is, well, actually you have been purified internally. You now are truly capable of priestly service to God because of the circumcision of the heart. Uh, so the true circumcision serves God, priestly service uh, in, by his spirit. Not only that, but the true circumcision boasts in Christ Jesus. Uh, the ultimate source of meaning and satisfaction to us should only come from Christ alone. It's not our abilities or gifts that save us. It is Christ. It is not our goodness or status or some self-generated faith. It is Christ. Paul exemplifies even this kind of boasting, uh, this proper perspective later on in the passage. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But here he provides a direct contrast for this misplaced boasting. The evildoers, again, they boasted themselves and they prided themselves in their ability to keep the law, keepers of the law. Well, no, you're evildoers. And instead, those who are the true circumcision, they don't boast in their works of the law. They boast in Christ Jesus alone. And then he says this, they, they put con- no confidence in the flesh. If there were any statement that would put kind of a capstone on this direct contrast that the the true circumcision, the spiritual community of the church should have to anyone that would add to the gospel, it's this. It's a final blow here to the cultic symbols that the Judaizers emphasize, and it's a final blow to any attempt that we would have, we would want or desire or tend to do to add on to the gospel, add any kind of act. Um, So just as the Judaizers were misusing these physical and outward shadows of things to come, um, there's no, uh, there's no short change or shortcut for just uh, emphasizing the pure gospel of, of putting no confidence in the flesh. And so it begs these questions. What are the indicators of our community life here at CCR? Would we say these are the three things when, we ask, when people ask us? I know we have our, our purpose statement and that's phenomenal. But it's just a a great question to ask. Would we identify these three features in our assembly here? Uh, Are you individually, am I, relying on uh, external conformities for our ongoing sanctification, for your original salvation or for your ongoing sanctification? Um, Do your external actions reflect an inward reality or are they more of a well-rehearsed hypocrisy or morality, moralism? 
Uh, do you find identity in your job, your education, how you educate, uh, your marriage, uh, your parenting, sexuality, friendships, relationships, wealth, poverty, the list, it seems endless. I could go, we could all go on and on and on, right? Um, that list was already a little long. But it, it serves to point out we are abundantly creative at ignoring our inability to be self-sufficient. We are abundantly creative at finding other ways to give ourselves meaning, to identify ourselves by something other than Jesus Christ. And God's word here provides a timely reminder for the Philippians and it abides for us today. It's a timely reminder for us. This is an, an old trick, like somehow it was unique to this day that these are the only people that add to the gospel. Nah, it's an old, it's, that's old news. It's what we continue to do, sadly. Um, and joy in the Lord, in the Lord being the source and the content, real joy, lasting joy, serves as a guard for the community because it guards the pure gospel. And not only that, but it displays the unity of the redeemed community. A community drawing confidence not on individual merit or even corporate identity, but on confidence in Christ, which brings us to the second main point this morning. And that is confidence in Christ alone reorients every aspect of our life. Confidence in Christ alone reorients every aspect of our life. We see this in verses four through seven. Uh, read them with me. So verse four, again, we, we've gone through what Paul contrasts here. Then Paul says this, uh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence, so Paul has just gone through a list, says, okay, these guys feel confidence in these things. And then he, he says something that's a little bit surprising in some ways. Um, I could, if I played by their rules, I would win, is essentially what he says. Though I have myself, I myself have reasons for such confidence in verse four. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. And then he goes on, describes this long list. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. And then he gives a stunning statement. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. So Paul ends the previous section describing true circumcision and then proceeds to analyze his own life by the, the terms that he just gave, which is really revealing and really helpful for us that Paul would do this for us. And he actually provides this statement at the end where he says, well, in spite of all this thing, these things I might have confidence in, here's what I have confidence in, Christ alone. And so Paul then provides an example of two specific ways that our life becomes reoriented by confidence in Christ. So confidence in Christ reorients every aspect of our life and it does it two ways. First, confidence in Christ challenges our personal pride. So Paul here gives a list of inherited and uh, personal accomplishments and it's sometimes a confusing list. Um, I know initially at first glance, you're like, well, why is all this stuff important? It's kind of strange that he would uh, give some of this information. Well, it, it, think of it this way. It's his CV in the business world. It might be called that. His social media profiles, Facebook profiles, Twitter profile, LinkedIn, whatever your social media choice might be. Um, his, uh, I can't believe I'm going to say this, his selfie. Uh, you know, the, the best picture possible he could take of himself. You know, we all know that's what a selfie really is. It's not real. Um, but what, what is so important about each one of these things? Well, it's actually 
pretty stunning to, to survey uh, the kind of person that Paul was prior to conversion. So circumcised on the eighth day, what does that mean? Um, besides being a little strange to, to know about Paul. Well, in fact, it was the strictest compliance to the Abrahamic covenant. So he's saying from the start of things, I was right on point. Because again, he's saying, if, if I could have the confidence that these Judaizers have, well, I'll play by their rules and let's see who wins. That's essentially what he's saying. Um, and also most significantly with this statement, he indicates that he was not a proselyte. He was not uh, one who came in from, outside to the, uh, in from outside of the Jewish faith. He was born into it in some ways. Um, of the people of Israel, what does that mean? Uh, well, it means he was racially a pure-blooded Israelite and Likely, that's how Jews referred to themselves. So when a Jew referred, referred to themselves, they were Israelites, people of Israel. When someone else, a Gentile, or someone outside of Israel referred back, that would be Jews. So you can see here, Paul's saying, I'm one of you. I'm an Israelite um, of the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, why is that? Why does Paul mention his tribe? Uh, that's going way back, right? I mean, that's, that's Old Testament right there. Um, well, a few reasons. Benjamin was the only son born in the promised land. Uh, the tribe of Benjamin was the only tribe to remain faithful to Judah and the house of David, King David, uh, after the death of Solomon. The tribe of Benjamin went into exile with Judah and returned to the promised land with Judah after exile to reestablish and resettle the promised land. Uh, so in that way, Benjam Benjamin was at the center of the earliest forms of Israelite spirituality post-exile. So in essence, he's saying, well, I have, a, I have tapped into the spirituality of Israel back to when we first resettled the promised land. So you think you're spiritual? I'm a Benjamite. And then, of course, uh, further, King Saul. He was a Benjamite. What was Paul's pre-conversion name? Saul. So you can see why he would list the tribe of Benjamin. It was spiritually significant. A Hebrew of Hebrews. Um, well, at first glance, you, well, he's not a Hebrew of Hebrews. He wasn't born in Israel. Well, he was, what he's saying is, no, I, I, even though he, I was born in Tarsus, which is in Asia Minor, um, my, my family, they were Jews. I am a Jew born from Jews. Uh, not only am I Hebrew, but my parents were Hebrews. Uh, not only that, I speak Hebrew. I speak Aramaic. I read the scriptures. I pray in Hebrew. So again, it's a spirit, superiority. that Many Jews viewed those who could read and pray in Hebrew as spiritually superior. So what Paul is saying is, I am spiritually superior. I can read in Hebrew. I pray in Hebrew. Uh, and he also is probably referencing his education. Uh, he was educated under a very prominent rabbi. Uh, so his education was top of the, was he had a private school education, Ivy League, whatever you want to call it. He had the best education. And then that transitions naturally into these earned these earned uh, personal accomplishments. He first says, in regard to the law of Pharisee, um, again, it's kind of obvious, well, he was a Pharisee. What does that mean? Why is that important? Well, uh, Pharisaism was an elite group in Israel uh, of Jews who willingly took a, a sect of, a, a, a vow of separation and, and added uh, onto themselves an adherence to hundreds of laws in addition to what the, the typical Jew would even adhere to. So Paul's basically saying, I, I agree to a kind of spiritual, spirituality that's even further than yours. Um, and even he, he could have said, just like he said, a Hebrew of Hebrews, he even here could have said a Pharisee of Pharisees. Because if we recount his, uh, his personal testimony in Acts 23 before the Sanhedrin, 
he actually says my ancestors were Pharisees. So he's got an Ivy League education. He has a family heritage of elite spiritual significance of Pharisaism in his family. He's a Pharisee. He willingly chose it. And he has the family heritage to back it up. Uh, so he held a morally superior position than the average Torah keeping Jew and even these Judaizers, I imagine. And then he says for zeal, persecuting the church. Uh, this is where Paul starts to kind of reorient and give an out, maybe an outsider's perspective on, on what he was doing as a Pharisee. And, and what he says is, well, he, I essentially single-handedly campaigned against the church, a campaign of terror, as it were, before there were campaigns of terror. Um, Probably the most obvious point of contact for us is at the stoning of Stephen. Paul was present. Um, commentators dispute what it meant when people cast their cloaks at his feet. Was that a sign of a th- Paul's authority? Was that like, yeah, you know, he's the one that initiated all of this, or was he just young and so he wasn't involved, or was he a Pharisee that didn't dirty his hands this way? But he was a. Either way, any way you, you cut it, he was complicit in murder likely complicit in torture uh, and imprisoning of Christians. Because it wasn't like when these guys, when these Christians went to prison, it wasn't like our prison system where they watch TV and work out all day. Uh, you know, they, it was serious. People, people died in prison. So Paul was complicit in all of this and many Jews viewed Christianity as a subset of, of Judaism. So he says, yeah, I, I had purity. So So this kind of zeal was a a religious zeal for the purity of of Israel, of Israelite worship. I thought I was trying to stamp out the church as a a kind of aberration of Israelite faith. And he says, I had a zeal. I persecuted the church. Uh, And in many ways, few could boast that kind of, of commitment to the Israelite faith. And then my favorite credentialing is this last one here because it it speaks so directly to what we are tempted to do. He says this, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. And at first glance you say, okay, uh, he followed the rules. Is that what he's talking about here? I mean, what kind of, what kind of righteousness is he referencing? Um, Well, the word for righteousness here hints at justification before God. So Paul caps all of this off. He gives this heritage that any of us would, would long for. The Blue Bloods in the Hamptons, you know, the Ivy League education. Um, not, not Blue Bloods, the white collar, I misspoke. Uh, regardless, he gives this kind of resume that each one of us would want. He had the, an ideal life. He had every, every credential you could have imagined. But then he says, if there could have been salvation through the law, I would have accomplished it, is what he says here. If salvation were possible through keeping rules, I would have been the guy and everyone else would have known it too because it would have been obvious. So ultimately, it asks, we, we must ask ourselves these questions. Are we relying, what are we relying on for our spiritual health life, and salvation. Paul gives credentials here. He listed inherited sources of pride. Are you relying on another person's morality for your spiritual health? Parents, spouse, friends, the sermon on Sunday. Uh, 
what sources of pride are in your life. Uh, and I'm not talking uh, feeling uh, blessed or uh, content or appreciative of God's gifts. I'm talking about pride, things that have come in the way of your spiritual life. Um, so, I, Because really asking you to, whether you rely on another person for your salvation at the point of salvation is, I know I was able to weasel out of that uh, question quite easily uh, growing up, and I imagine we're all pretty good at that. Uh, if I would say, are you relying on someone else for your salvation? You could probably say, no, I, I committed initially. Yeah, I mean, I, it was me. I made the decision. So I, it really seems the better question is, do you take your spiritual life seriously enough, ongoing spiritual life, uh, or do you let the Sunday sermon or family devotions or a song on the radio keep you just fed enough? Take your relationship with the living Savior seriously as your own responsibility. Um, what parts of your life are better than everyone else's? Because Paul's clear about his status here. He doesn't lie or he's not fudging or he's not, um, he's not unnecessarily building himself up. He's conveying facts, verifiable facts. How is your parenting or education style or uh, your marriage better than another family's? Um, how are you better as a husband or a wife or a student, a better friend, uh, businessman, better Christian? And how have you just felt pride with those questions? Are there religious or moral acts that you do every day, every week, that generate pride and create pride in your heart? Um, because indeed, there are areas where we contribute to one another. There are areas where we can counsel and help and provide advice. There are areas where we are further along than others and we should be willing and humble enough to help people. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about are areas where it's gone beyond that, where your conversations are not with love and with the best intent in your heart and in your mind. Uh, so don't make a virtue a vice. The Judaizers made good things of the old covenant, uh, took them way way beyond God's intent. They were laws given by God, they were good. Um, and some of them continue to be good. Um, don't make a virtue a vice. Uh, do you feel like you're good enough to merit even a small measure of favor from God? I itty bitty bit. Did you earn God's favor today? I mean, you weren't as bad. You're in, you're in church, for goodness sake. Um, do you believe there are days that you don't need salvation? quite as much as others. Um, Paul destroys our thinking here, if this kind of thinking here. Uh, there is no justification or righteous uh, moral behavior that changes our, our status before God that can be attained by the law, by acts of the flesh. God's word is clear on our need to have confidence in Christ alone. And first off, this confidence destroys personal pride. And then second off, confidence in Christ alone changes our source of self-worth. You get the sense that uh, Paul garnered really great personal meaning from this list he just gave. Um, and he begins the entire section by saying, rejoice in the Lord. The source and content of joy comes from the Lord. And he, he was likely re reminded of the kind of contentment and purpose and sense of identity he garnished from all of these things. I mean, he's not giving up small things. You and I, I mean, 
let's be fair. If, if I had to give my list of credentials, it probably wouldn't match up to Paul's. Paul gave up a lot. Um, and not only that, Paul beat the Judaizers, the legalists on their own terms. How many of us could do that? You know, the moralist, how many of us could even meet the, beat the moralist at their own game? Um, any moral superiority, Paul could claim it. Greater purity. Uh, any confidence in the flesh, Paul could one-up that. Uh, any social capital, you want to talk about the kind of social credibility that Paul had? Um, he could claim even greater social credibility because of his status. Uh, regardless of the point of, uh, of argument or area of personal pride, Paul could claim a more complete and more convincing place of prominence. Yet you and I continue to try this old trick, right? Uh, it's such a tired and persistent struggle for each one of us to, to push down the pride in our hearts and to submit that Christ alone is our source of meaning and identity. We continually fulfill the proverb, uh, the dog that returns to its vomit. That's us, you and me. And when Paul closes this section, he does so in an incredible reversal in, in where you gain self-worth, where you gain value, where, where your source of confidence is when he says this. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Christ alone stands in our credit column. Uh, the apostle here uses language that where gain is plural and loss is singular. So in this sense, one by one, the apostle, he adds up every individual item of personal merit he could come up with. And in contrast to the insearchable plural gain of Christ, his is a singular loss. So I've asked uh, in a variety of ways throughout the sermon, uh, yet it warrants attention again. Where do you find your joy? Where do you find your contentment? What's your source of feeling settled and secure? Uh, when all else fails, when you've had the roughest day possible, where, where do you gain that little bit of courage to keep going? Uh, is it money? Relationships, appearance, position, prestige. We've, we've made, I've made many lists this morning. Uh, and I think each one of us, as we're honest with ourselves, will find that thing. Uh, in the business world, uh, financially troubled companies declare two types of bankruptcy. There's chapter seven, bankruptcy where there's no future for the business to remain viable. Then there's chapter 11, bankruptcy, where there's a chance that oh, over time the, the business could regain financial footing, regain viability. What kind of spiritual bankruptcy have you declared? Temporary or permanent? I think most of us actually declare temporary bankruptcy because having trusted in Christ alone for salvation initially, we wander away subtly and unconsciously at times. We revert to a kind of works relationship with God. Um, we've become dogs, evildoers, and mutilators of the flesh. We've mutilated God's gift of grace by insisting on bringing credentials or abilities or gifts to the gospel. Um, while we do recognize our best efforts maybe didn't initially get us to heaven, we think that 
they earn God's blessing in our daily lives. And that's not true. As simple as it is, that's just not true. God's word tells us here, that's not the case. So do you claim self-sufficiency? Have you bought into that myth? It's very prominent. It's a very common myth that we are self-sufficient. That's not true either. It's very subtle and a very common way for us to slowly drift away from dependence inward rather than upward. Do you have joyful confidence in Christ alone? My assertion this morning was to rejoice in the Lord and place all your confidence in Christ alone. Rejoicing in the Lord is a guard to the unity of the church because why? Such joy preserves the pure gospel and displays the unity of the redeemed community. Have confidence in Christ alone. Why? Because it reorients every aspect of our life by challenging our personal pride and changing our source of self-worth. Rejoice in the Lord and place all your confidence in Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your persistent love and your persistent grace in our lives that you pursue sinners who continually are drawn away. Our hearts are drawn to so many different things. We desire things of this world. We desire such selfish things where we often become clouded and confused about where our source of meaning and identity comes from. But, oh God, give us a lasting joy that has its source and content in you. And may we place our confidence not only at the initial moment of conversion, but day by day as we preach the gospel to ourselves. Uh, may we continue to abide in you. We are so grateful that you are faithful and kind and loving and gentle, and you pursue us continually. In Jesus' name I ask all these things. Amen.